Hi, it's David Lloyd with The Grind today, and I'm joined by Joel Lesson, President and CEO of Firmax. Firmax has offices now in Toronto and in London, and they're rapidly becoming the standard SaaS-based solution for sharing large volumes of highly confidential and sensitive documents for corporate transactions, litigation, and compliance. A little background on Joel. First, I've had the pleasure of knowing Joel for well over eight years now, watching him grow Firmax. And we actually were growing at roughly the same pace when uh, I was CEO of IntelliResponse. And then I've watched Joel just blow his company out of the water in that growth since then. Joel himself has got over 25 years of business experience, successfully accelerating revenue for a number of different companies. Uh, prior to co-founding Firmax back in 2006, Joel drove uh, the U.S. growth of Point Force Inc., leading to the company acquisition in 2004. And in 1999, well before the bubble, only by a year or two, Joel co-founded Crescent Logic, a software company that provided online equity research uh, publishing tools for investment banks. He's a frequent speaker uh, and podcaster uh, who's interviewed quite often and appears at CEO forums and industry events. He actually studied and has a history uh, a philosophy background in science and also a Master's of Arts from the University of Toronto, where we all know not only is it great from a standpoint of Master of Arts students, but AI is coming out very powerfully as well. And a Bachelor of Arts from McGill University in Montreal, one of the preeminent uh, universities in Canada. Joel, welcome to The Grind. I'd like to start with just a few general interest questions today to kind of get us started and kind of ease into that that one big learning that we'll talk about in a few minutes. So welcome. Thank you, David. Um, start really simply. Is there anything you're watching right now with GOT and everything else going on with Game of Thrones? Is there anything you're binge watching? Do you watch much TV? I don't actually watch TV. I haven't watched a single episode of Game of Thrones. I hear about it. Uh, I do watch the Raptors and uh, sports, uh, but I tend to spend most of my time uh, reading. When I'm uh, when I'm you know chilling out or uh, walking my dog, so uh, and part of the challenge is also get up at five fifteen in the morning. So uh, watching TV at night is not really uh, easy. <laughs> no, I can understand that. I know for me, I'd like to think I maybe go to bed around five fifteen, but uh, that's really now. Do you prefer audio books or you actually prefer the the paper uh, sort? Yeah, I I, I don't. I, I take information in by reading words. I don't like listening and I don't like watching. Uh, it's, you know, we all have our different ways of, uh, of consuming information. Uh, I think Kindle is the best inv invention uh, ever. Um, I have, um, uh, you know, a thousand books on my Kindle. Uh, it wow. gives me access to millions and millions of books. Uh, prior to that, I had a, a club membership to Indigo and I go every other weekend. And now this is just far superior. It's just a way bigger library for me to browse. Uh, and I read nonfiction, uh, strictly nonfiction. Okay, so Game of Thrones is never going to factor into your life, and there's no spoiler alert there for you, so I think that's fantastic. Raptors are doing fairly well, so that's always positive. So on that basis, what, what's kind of the book that's caught your eye or that you're reading right now? I usually have a few on the go, but the one I'm reading right now is called The Billionaire Raj. It's about the, um, the rise of um, business tycoons in India and the intersection of uh, business and government in India. And um, 
and just the evolution of that country uh, over the last 20 years. So is it a historical perspective as much as it is about the billionaires, just how commerce is growing in India during that time? It really starts with deregulation in the early 90s. Oh, interesting. Uh, and you know, prior to that, uh, developing businesses were very challenging in India because of the amount of regulation. Uh, you needed uh, all sorts of government licenses to do anything, so lobbying the government was a key part of your skill set if you wanted to be a successful businessman, mm -hmm. which really um, favored a limited number of people with deep pockets. So, uh, you know, the current, you know, when they started deregulating, uh, that really led to a lot more growth in India, a lot more entrepreneurship. And uh, it's very interesting. It's a you know it's a 1.3 billion people live in India, mm -hmm. um, you know, but they have their challenges. It's uh, you know only 37 million people pay income tax in India, for example. Yeah, and uh, interestingly enough, what did it take six weeks to wrap up their elections uh, recently? Uh, but it is it's an it's a very I find it a very fa a very interesting economy, a very interesting country, it's a fascinating country. It's an English-speaking country. It's a country that highly uh, values education. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, it's, so it's, I, I tend to gravitate towards books on you know, economic and business development. Uh, yep. A prior book I read to that uh, is called uh, Red Flags. It's about uh, what's going on in China. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I like to, when, when anything, there's any a question in my mind, I go and research it. And you seem to like the geopolitical side of it, uh, yeah. getting outside the North American sure. um, bubble and looking at what's happening worldwide. That's right. So before we get into anything too heavy, Joel, what's uh, your favorite destination or vacation place? Do you get to take much time off? I do take time off. Uh, you know, I, I, I do a couple of things. I love nature. So wherever I can get close to nature, uh, I... I um, I explore. Uh, I would say uh, one one area is underwater. So if mm -hmm. I go, we go to the Caribbean uh, with our family, and if I can get to diving or snorkeling, um, I really enjoy that. Mm -hmm. uh, or in the case, uh, uh, we recently went to Costa Rica a couple of times. There's a okay. lot of nature there. And in the summer, I try to head up north in Canada to the Yukon. I do self-guided canoe trips okay. uh, and major rivers in the Yukon. Wow. It's another way to get to nature. So if Is that a great way to knock off so you don't have cell service at the same time up right. there? That's right. It's, it, you know what, when you eliminate the internet and cell phones, what is 10 days feels like two months. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I know we're so distracted all the time, so the chance to break the mobile yeah. you know, uh, wireless cord, so to speak, is probably a great one. Have you ever been to Grenada for uh, diving? I haven't been to Grenada. Yet. Okay, great, great place, uh, shore diving or, or just so many different sites there. So it's, uh, it's amazing for diving from that standpoint. So let's bounce a little bit towards the, the, the business side. Obviously, Firmax, you know, has been growing for years now. Give me a little bit of understanding of when you founded it. What was the idea? What was the problem you were trying to solve? What led you and the founders to kind of get that one off the ground? Well, I, I would step back and say I, I always, I thought about my life and I thought when I'm, you know, 80 years old and, and, and perhaps, um, you know, slowing down a bit, uh, what in my career would, would I wanted to accomplish? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was working as a salesperson for entrepreneurs for quite a number of years, and you know, building a successful business was the number one thing. So it was a mission of mine to do that. Now, Firmex was my second attempt. You know, yep. it, 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 it don't always uh, 
work out. Um, the way and, you want to, and no. And so the, the, the difference though, when I was started Firmex is, you know, I was 39, uh, had a house, had a mortgage, had a wife, had a newborn. Uh, so failure really wasn't an option. Yep. And um, so when I, when I, I came across the uh, opportunity, uh, my co-founders had developed a, a deal room for a, a law firm here in Toronto. And I realized that uh, the current uh, competition was offering it in a manner that was both expensive and drove less customer value. Mm -hmm. And so I saw a market opportunity uh, to take a subscription-based virtual data room yep. to the market with an inside sales model and uh, digital marketing. And uh, you know that was fundamentally, I just took advantage of a market opportunity. And, and when was out, that? Was that 2006, roughly? Yeah, we got off the ground in late 2006. And, um, and so um, now it became apparent that the the business would need a bit of capital if I wanted to keep making, mm -hmm. uh, although I ended up selling my house, but at the time mortgage <laughs> payments, uh, and, 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 and putting food on the table. And, and same with my co-founders, we were all about the same age, and yep. we had kids to feed. So we took in a little bit of uh, angel money, um, paid in capital, $4 million in paid in capital. Uh, but we had a capital plan right from the beginning uh, to build the business, and the business was effective at selling um, increasing number of customers mm -hmm. uh, quarter over quarter, year over year. So, um, you know, we got to profitability in, in relatively short order. So this wasn't this attempt at being a moonshot unicorn. This was actually about building a real technology company that could carry its own weight. That was right. the focus, was yeah. building a real well, company. I had an early recognition, two things. One is I recognized the size of the TAM. Mm -hmm. And it, it just does, it, the TAM was, it's a niche TAM, and it's probably about 800 million today. So globally. the total addressable market was 800 million? Well, it is now. It, it was is probably now. half okay. that when we started. Okay. Um, and it just wasn't appropriate to take on institutional capital uh, for that size of TAM, as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and the other part was risk. Um, the more capital you take on, the more risk um, you, um, you in, uh, incur. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, failure wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thought I had around the business was that as, as failure was not an option, we wanted to build a business that could be profitable. Yep. Because valuations tend to be um, volatile on mm -hmm. companies. Uh, they happen to be very frothy uh, now. They yes. may not be frothy in 10 years. And so if you build a business that's profitable, you can't lose. No, I think it, that's such a, an important point. I think one of the things I always look at is, you know, we've had a great bull market now for almost, what, 10 years? Eventually, you know, the music's going to stop and some of the chairs are going to get yeah. removed. And those companies that haven't built any type of sustainability right. are not going to have anywhere to sit because the capital is going to dry up really quickly, which we've seen happen multiple times between 1999 and today. Yeah, and, and on a personal basis, you know, when, you, when you're starting a company at 40, uh, you don't have as much runway as when you're 20. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to burn the next 10 years of your life with, um, you know, without the, the desired financial result. Yep. So, you know, you got to be wise uh, uh, about that. Uh, one of the, the questions I always put to new founders, and I, I go and, and, and speak to them uh, in, the, in these uh, sort of founder institute, I say, mm -hmm. what's your financial number have you have you talked about it with your co-founders 
-hmm. because you need to build your whole plan around uh, making sure you don't overcapitalize your business or even undercapitalize your business yep. around that number. Uh, and I find that, in fact, uh, I've probably asked that question to 20 or 30 founders and almost all of them said we've never talked about it. So give me an example of, of what that conversation sounds like when you talk about it, because it's, it's almost like talking about your financials with your spouse, I guess, or, or anybody else. Uh, what is that conversation? How does that roll out? Well, is it the magic number that, hey, you know, once we get to this amount, or I'd really like to be here personally, what does that conversation sound like? Well, it, the conversation I initially had was me looking, I got some good advice early on, and the advice was, don't be greedy. Okay. Uh, so w when you first start out, for most people, you're not greedy. Mm -hmm. But when you have some success, people's, you know, people can get, you know, their, their eyes might get slightly light, wider and they, they just get excited about being, you know, you know, more and more financially successful. Um, that is dangerous. Okay. Um, you know, it's sort of like Icarus who flies too close to the sun as he gets higher and higher and eventually mm -hmm. has a big crash. So, um, you know, the first conversation is personally, I said, you know, my financial success, if I could just pay off this mortgage, I should be happy. <laughs> you know, sort of set the bar. You sure that works that way? The mortgage, you know. Uh, but when we sat down with the founders, we came up with a number. And I like to pose the question to this when I talk at forums. I say, look, if you have a 1% chance of making 100 million, you, I'll give you a choice. You have four choices. You pick one. 1% okay. chance of making 100 million. 5% chance of making 10 million, a 30% chance of making 5 million, or a 50% chance of making 2 million, which one do you pick? And I've got a group of founders who've all raised their hands to raise capital, and you know what the number they pick is? Um, probably not the first one. I might 50% guess... chance of making 2 million. Because really? you know what? Right now, they probably got 30 grand in the bank. So mm. I said, so then why are you raising money? Do you, do you feel though that causes the, the founders to think of the business in too limiting a terms in terms of what's possible when you, when you kind of take that approach? No, I think it, they, they have to recognize what the opportunity and what the risks are. Okay. And what we don't talk a lot about in, in the tech community is, you know, it is a boulevard of broken dreams. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't hit the press releases very often. No, and there's a hell of a lot more broken dreams right? than there are Venture successes. Venture capital buries their dead quietly. <laughs> and so I feel for these founders who are mortgaging their homes or selling their houses or putting it on, on the line, taking big risks, it's like, okay, I want you to be successful. Mm -hmm. I want you to be able to pay off your mortgage and put your kids through university and, 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 and have a good life. Yep. So these are the things you want to think about. And there's many ways, other ways to mitigate your risk. Yeah. Um, so fortunately with, and you need to have alignment between your part, your founders, mm -hmm. right? If one founder wants to have a hundred million dollar outcome, the other founder will be happy with a $5 million outcome. You're going to have a problem. Yep. You have a lack of alignment. Lack of alignment. And, and so um, one of the fortunate things with Firmex is the three founders, I was with two other major founders. We had alignment in that number. And so we built a business model and a plan and a funding plan that align with that number. Okay. 
Now, what happened, because obviously I know some of the background of Firmex, you, you would have overachieved on that potential, potential uh, number uh, with the way you've grown the business. So how did you come together to kind of reset the level? Because I'm sure you must have in some ways reset at different times what we've accomplished or we're at a position where we could have that right. surety. Is that good enough or do we want to push it even farther right, and right. harder? Um, it was a reminder. We remind, uh, to be honest with you, uh, so I wrote a five-year plan that took 10 years to achieve, yep. as, as is common. But we did achieve, uh, I, I would add that it's only, we have accomplished our number. Yep. And, and so it's sort of like we've, um, we've achieved that, but now we've, we've, to some extent, because we've been through two private equity secondary transactions. Very successfully, by the right. way, so that's amazing. So, so now that, that, has, that we've put that to bed, yes. we can take more risk. Uh, so what you're saying is because in some ways, and I, I think we see that a lot more uh, over the last three or four years where you can take some off the table, right. kind of create that, I wouldn't say safety net, but you kind of lock that in. Now you're playing with the house's money, you're not playing with yours the same. It, it almost leads to a different risk profile or at least a different level of thinking. Is, is that what you're suggesting? Or? Yeah, that, I, I think that's, you know, just from a... It's it, still, you have money on the yeah, table, yeah. don't get me wrong, yeah. but it's, yeah. not, it's now a different proportion than you're you, in a different you, place. You, you sleep a little better at night. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as they say, famous line, uh, entrepreneurs sleep like babies. They wake up every two hours and cry, right? <laughs> that has finally ended. Yes. <laughs> so, oh. so um, you know, but you, you know what? What I find really fascinating, despite all that, you just, you care just as much about the success of the business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, success in and of itself is is so critical to what drives you know you and, and you know to to put in the effort and time and yep. and and and, and, um, and work uh, to to build the business. You know, I would I would add another thing. You know, we've talked a lot about financial, but perhaps the the biggest reward is to build an organization where people succeed. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes. When you join a company, uh, you know, sometimes you get, they're good, bad, and ugly. You know, sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're somewhere in between, and some of them they're not so good. Yep. When you found a company and are really the arc, you know, help uh, choose the leadership of that company, mm -hmm. you build a culture. Yep. And it's a place you go to every day that you really enjoy going to if you've got a very positive culture. And mm -hmm. it's, I would say, you know, aside from the commercial success, because you can't really, it's hard to build a company without commercial success. Yes. Uh, it's, you know, it's called a not-for-profit. <laughs> right. uh. So you ha that's a foundation, obviously. But really, the, the greatest reward, one, probably one of the things I'm most proud of, for example, is our glass door rating. Yep. We have one of the highest glass door ratings. Um, you know, it, uh, you know it, I would say probably in the top 5%. Excellent. Um, People enjoy working here. They respect each other. It's collaborative. Uh, you spend most of your waking hours in the environment. Okay. Um, and so, as an operator, that is so important. And uh, for me, is a sense of achievement, uh, along with you know the people that have worked here and helped develop the culture and the, and of the of the company. Uh, I'm really proud of that. So. I think that's fantastic. I mean, we hear culture is so pervasive nowadays. It's it's what many in, 
individuals who are coming to companies are seeking something that gives them alignment, fulfillment. So when we think of Firmex then and everything you've learned through, not only with you and the founder, the other founders successfully growing it, but then having one exit to a PE firm, then growing it again and having another successful exit to another PE firm. What's that one key idea or piece of advice that you'd like to give to our listeners that you've taken away from that? Is it culture? Is it about alignment? What, what's that one piece of advice that you'd say, hey, keep this in mind as you're building a company right. uh, from that perspective? Well, then I would add I sold close to half the company to my angel group. So it's really my third oh, okay. investor group So it's, it's, that I have now. So first of all, your investors are your partners. Mm-hmm. You, when, when you take on investor money, you take on great responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right? You're responsible for the equity. Uh, and for me, you know, probably the third leg, you know, we talked about personal financial success, we talked about culture, but also as a CEO, when you make people a multiple of their investment, yes, multiple times, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a big notch, right? It is. And, it- and so, uh, you know, it, you didn't price the offering too high. You didn't get greedy on the on the raise. Mm-hmm. Um, you were uh, careful uh, on. A, you, you, you know, you didn't you didn't you know uh, cram down the equity. You didn't you didn't wreck the equity. Uh, yep. You didn't wreck the cap table. I think that's always been really important to me. Um, and so, you know, on the first exit, I was just really happy that my angel group who bet on me early on. Mm-hmm. had a good outcome. I mean, yep. we did too, but you know, they had a good outcome and they were really happy. Yes. And you know, I would say it, it, I w- I'm happy that I made the second group some money too. Yep. And, and you know, there were some, um, you, know, uh, you know, internal employees made some money. But, uh, and now I have my third group. And so I feel it's, you know, I feel responsible to them and hopefully I can achieve the same for them as well and as well as other investors. So, but I would say I was well positioned for investors because I was one of, I mean, there were three founders, but there really were effectively five founding shareholders. Yes. And then I had, I, you know, within, you know, six months of founding, we had an angel investment group. I was reporting to shareholders from day one. Okay. On a quarterly basis, I, you know, on diligently quarterly basis. And so I always had a lot of respect for them. I think a founder who's, you know, uh, who's never had investors, may come as a surprise that they have this extra responsibility and duty and they needed to be transparent and, and, and open and, and, um, and have a good relationship with an investor board and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And I've had an investor board for 12 years. Yes. And so uh, for me, it, it wasn't that big a transition from you know, an angel group to, to some extent to an institutional group, a little more formality mm-hmm. um, with processes. Um, but also strong alignment, uh, you know, with private equity versus venture capital, they are aligned. They don't believe in failure as an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas venture, it's part of the part of the mix. Yeah, it's a spray and pray, right? And so, so failure not being an option, alignment in the uh, in the in the class structure of the shares. So there's mm-hmm. not someone with a preferred or you know and and non-preferred is is was really important to me. But also alignment on how you're going to run the business. And with private equity um, and, and how I run the business, failure not an option, make profits, you know, grow efficiently. Uh, mm-hmm. That that has been really good, uh, a really good alignment for me and, and these investors. 
Okay, so I think that's really important. So the takeaway is you're going, if you're going to have investors, you really have to make sure that, because you know, we hear so often, oh, there's stupid money out there, just take any money that comes, but there's a fiduciary duty the CEO really has to making sure that they're well aligned with the interest that they have in growing their business and the investors who are actually putting the capital in to really give them the accelerant to do that. Yeah, that's correct. Fantastic. Um, as we uh, kind of wind down a little bit here, one of the questions I'm curious about, that's a great piece of advice you've given us for uh, founders to think about uh, as they move forward. Was there any favorite piece of advice, uh, you mentioned something off the top, that you were given that kind of has stuck with you uh, through your career of really building a company uh, from that standpoint? Well, other than don't be greedy, which was really good advice. Who gave you that advice? If I can ask, what persona gave you that advice? <laughs> it was a, a fellow, his name is Michael Diamond. Okay. Uh, Cadillac Fairview family. He had a software company in the 80s. He's, yep. he's older, older than me. Uh, they could have sold in the late 80s, but they said, you know what, we could make even more money. Of course, we had the housing correction in the early 90s and, and ultimately sold for a, a less opt. And that's, I think, what he was referring to. Yeah. I, was, I, I took it to perhaps another level where I thought just personally, mm -hmm. don't get corrupted by success or power or whatever it mm -hmm. is, right? Um, you know, uh, so not just money, but from, remain down to earth. Okay, be grounded. grounded. Um, you know, the, the second good advice I got, uh, when, I, when I came to this company, I started building it, and I was mainly a senior sales rep, and briefly a sales manager, and I was doing the CEOing thing. And, you know, I had 50 staff. And so someone uh, came into my orbit, her name was Cindy Bush, and she was doing a, a coaching certification. And she was a, a, a senior HR person at Omer's at the time. And she, so I said, okay, so she sat down, she says, what do you want to figure out? I said, well, you know, I'm the CEO of this company now, and I want to understand what is great leadership? Mm -hmm. And she said, great leadership is letting others succeed mm -hmm. and helping others succeed. Is that how they qualify almost servant leadership today, Joel? Is that how you look at it? No, but I see that in contrast to the whole um, star CEO oh, okay. persona. So if you go to the website and it's the CEO story and yeah. it's always the CEO out front. They're burning this, brightest. Right, yeah. And to me, that was a really, um, you know, people said, Joel, you should get out there and build your brand and mm -hmm. get more PR. And I thought, that's not really what I'm about. Yep. I, I, I like what Cindy Bush told me. Okay. And that... Um, you know, the, the people of the, the company will speak for you. So they burn bright and you're there to support them that way. Right. Now I think, you know, that's, I think it's a fantastic selfless way to look at it there. And I hear the same thing even today, you know, in my company and it's, you know, David, can you go out there, be at more conferences, speak at more conferences? And I said, yeah, I could, but I'd rather have our head of customer success or our head of sales or people they're the ones that I want out there. They should be the brand ambassadors right. because that, that's much more amplification than what I can bring. And so, no, I completely agree with you. I think, uh, and it, it gives them a sense of purpose in their careers and really sure. lifts them up. So Absolutely. Very good. Any parting ideas before uh, we shut down on uh, this podcast? 
I would say to, to anyone out there that is an aspiring entrepreneur, um, go for it. I love that advice. Yeah. I think it's perfect. Yeah. Thanks so much, Joel. You're welcome. All right. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Floater Founder Every Week. We look forward to bringing you more content from more amazing people in our city. Until next time.